Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Well, good morning. Welcome to Orchard Bible Church. Uh, My name is Jeff Yulman. I'm one of the members here. And uh, this is our preaching service, and today's our last day where this is going to be preaching only. So starting next week, we'll return to our normal format with um, singing and announcements. Um, And today we're going to continue in our series through Genesis, studying the life of Joseph. Only today's passage, chapter 38, actually doesn't mention Joseph at all. Uh, Furthermore, Genesis 38 is considered one of the most scandalous books or chapters in the Bible. And uh, it can be even a little embarrassing to read privately let alone in church and mixed company here. So um, at face value, one might reasonably ask, why is this story included in the Bible? You know, what is the purpose? What is the redemption to this story? So because our, st- our text is a little strange at first, um, I would like to open our time reading from Psalm 51. If you'd like to turn there with me, Psalm 51. And if you don't bring a Bible with you, there's sh- I think there's some in the chairs still. Um, And if you don't own a Bible of your own, that one's uh, a gift for you. But um, take it home and use hand sanitizer with it first. Um, I I chose Psalm 51 as I believe it represents what may have incurred internally within Judah at the end of our story in Genesis 38. Psalm 51, if you're familiar with it, it's the psalm that King David wrote after having been confronted by the prophet Nathan um, after having uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba. So if you are able... Please stand with me um, as we read from Psalm 51, looking at verses 1 through 3, and then we'll skip to verses 9 through 12. Um, Here we don't stand out of empty tradition, but out of reverence for God. So church, this is God's word. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Skipping to verse 9. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let's pray. Dear Father, we praise you, um, looking at you with a character that is filled abundant with mercy and steadfast love. Who wouldn't be attracted to a God like that? And we know what King David didn't. We know who this comes through. It's through your son Jesus, and we're so thankful to have uh, the opportunity to have a personal, interactive relationship with your son Jesus. I pray that you would help us to see um, the thread of redemption in our story this morning as we look at Genesis 38 and help us to just be encouraged by difficult truths in your word, in your name. Amen. All right, please be seated. Each of us here knows someone or multiple people that is always sharing random stories. Now, whether it's a family member, a coworker, someone in your Bible, home group, Perhaps you're having a lively conversation with a friend who just had a baby, and then someone interjects with this random story about what their dog did. Or you're studying the Bible, and someone abruptly changes the topic to a great deal that they got because they got some coupons in the mail. Or you're having a meaningful conversation with your neighbor, but her husband interjects telling you about their son who lives out of state in the landscaping business that he runs. 
Whatever it may be, people often will tell you random stories that make you wonder, why is this person telling me this? And then after the conversation returns to normal, you think, well, that was random. So I suspect that is sort of what our passage is like this morning for most of us when we come across reading it, except your neighbor's not telling you about their son's landscaping business, but about the first time that they got a colonoscopy. In Genesis 37, we are simply reading along, interested in what's about to happen to Joseph next, and then we abruptly come upon this random and rather uncomfortable story about some messed up stuff that happens in Judah's family life in Genesis 38. And if you're like me, you've probably read this story several times before, almost always in late January, because you're reading through the Bible in a year, and each time you think, well, that was weird and a little bit creepy, and how in the world did Judah accidentally impregnate his daughter-in-law? And then we're happy to see that the story goes back to Joseph. So for those who have paused a few minutes to contemplate Genesis 38, you've probably asked one or both of these questions. First, why is this story in the Bible? And second, why is it here when it has nothing to do with Joseph? And before we answer those two questions, I want to briefly summarize the story for those who aren't familiar with it, or maybe it's been several years, or at best it's been since late January since you've read this. And if you have read it before, I'm sure it'll come back, because one advantage in being strange is that it is memorable. So we'll step through the story in detail later on, but first I'm going to give you a big picture overview um, before we move through the parts. So right after Judah and his brothers sell Joseph into slavery, Judah decides to leave his family. He finds a Canaanite woman attractive, marries her, has three different sons. And then Er marries Tamar, but is wicked and killed by God, leaving her as a childless widow. And then she marries Onan, who is um, Er's younger brother. He's next in line. He's supposed to provide an heir to her. But he's selfish, wanting to keep the larger portion of the inheritance to himself, so he purposely withdraws each time they have sex, preventing having a child. So God kills him as well. At this point, Judah's fearing that his last son, Shelah, may die as well, so he sidelines uh, Tamar, leaving her as an indefinite widow. A year or two later, Judah's own wife dies, making him susceptible to certain temptations as he's going to a festival, and Tamar, having figured out that she's not actually going to be married to Shelah, puts together a plan where she disguises herself as a prostitute and easily deceives Judah into impregnating her. Now, the climax of the story is when, hearing of Tamar's pregnancy, Judah coldly calls for her execution, her burning. And as she's being brought out, she presents these items that show the identification of the father, which, of course, is Judah. Now, Judah is humbled, and he admits fault, Tamar is spared, and then gives birth to twins, concluding the chapter, and we return to Joseph. So with that big-picture summary, why is this story in the Bible? Now, Genesis is a selective narrative, meaning that only certain portions of stories are actually included. The author chooses to include only that which is relevant to the overall message or advances the theme. So he leaves some stuff out and includes other things. Some people get multiple chapters, like Joseph. Others just a paragraph, others just a sentence, and some not at all. So if you were putting together Joseph or Genesis, why would you include this story? Why not skip it, this disturbing story about Judah and Tamar? Where is the redemption in this? Now, as we step through the narrative, you'll see that there's moral lessons throughout the whole narrative. But I think the author had more than just the life lessons in mind. I think there's four main reasons why this story is included. First is it explains Judah's character change. We meet 
a very different Judah in chapters 43 and 44 than who's in chapter 37 just before this. And without chapter 38, we'd have no idea why that took place. So this is the context for what caused that change. Second reason is that the lineage of King David and Jesus actually come to and are traced back to this event. Third is Judah's immorality in our chapter here highlights Joseph's chastity in the next section. And so we don't take it for granted. We see that Joseph's uh, faithfulness is rather uncommon as verified by Judah's unfaithfulness. And fourth is that Genesis 38 communicates a really important principle about how God works. God can work through any situation and in anyone to redeem people from any place that they are. So we're going to spend more time looking at each of these this morning, um, but hopefully now you have a greater framework to process it and, and, and greater reason to tune in as well. So let's consider our second question then. Why include this story here? Why interrupt Joseph's story with a chapter that makes no mention of Joseph? Now the first verse of chapter 39 picks up exactly where the last verse of chapter 37 left off. Both talk about Joseph being brought down to Egypt. So if you were to move or remove Genesis 38, it would continue seamlessly without any interruption. Um, and as, as verse 1 of 38 indicates, this happens right after that. So this is concurrent, at least the beginning. But as we can infer from the events, this is going to take quite some time. Because we see Judah marrying, having three kids, two of which also married. But when we look at 37 to 39, that's probably only two or three weeks have passed by. So we know that chapter 38 also has to end before chapter 43. So we've got that confinement at least. You'll notice if you look at the back of your bulletin, I included a basic timeline. Um, along the arrow there in the gray boxes, that's how old Joseph was. And then uh, in the black boxes with the labels, that's the chapter in the Bible it's referring to. So scripture tells us Joseph was 17 when he was sold as a slave and that he was 30 when he was appointed second to Pharaoh. We know that Jacob and his family came down in the second um, year of the famine after seven good years. So that's nine years after he was appointed. So we know that the events of Genesis 38 took a little bit less than 22 years because it was from when Joseph was 17 to when he was 39 that he reconnects with uh, Judah. So we have 22 years here, but really this chapter could have been included anywhere before 43. So the real reason, the compelling reason on which uh, 38 is sandwiched between 37 and 39 is because uh, there's a lot of stylistic parallels. I'll just list some of them briefly here for you. We have Joseph going down to Egypt while Judah is going down to visit Hira. Jacob is told to examine the bloody tunic. Judah is told to examine the staff and cord. Jacob would not be consoled over the loss over his son. Judah loses two sons and a wife and is consoled. Jacob is deceived by his sons. Judah is deceived by Tamar. And Potiphar is deceived by his wife. Tamar seduces by necessity. Potiphar's wife seduces in vain. Judah is immoral. And Joseph is chaste. So hopefully you can see that this story wasn't some thoughtless detour, but it is actually valuable and strategically placed. So now that we can approach this story with an expectation of redemption, redeeming value here, let's work through the chapter in different sections uh, with an eye for two different themes. First, the accumulating effects of ignoring sin. And second, I want you to see if, that God can redeem any situation. 
And it'll be helpful to keep your Bible open to 30, uh, chapter 38 as we step through these verses. So starting in verse 1, right from the outset, we see Judah making poor and selfish decisions. This shouldn't surprise us. It was Judah's idea to sell Joseph for a profit when they got rid of him. And uh, reading verses 1 through 2. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. So the first red flag that we see is when Judah left his brothers. Now consider the significance to that for just a moment. Judah's father, Jacob, who we also call Israel, he and his family were the chosen people of God. The promised blessings were to come through that family. If you think about the law and Moses, that's still 500 years away in the future. So really, the only people at this point who truly feared the one true God was Jacob and Jacob's family. And Judah left their fellowship and rejected that promised blessing so that he could live with the Canaanite culture. Now, also of note is that Judah was really supposed to be next in line for the tribe now that Joseph's out of the picture. The older three, uh, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, they had all blown it and messed it up. So Judah was next in line, so he's leaving that role as well. So this is not an example of a young man striking out to make his own way in the world. This is an outright rejection of his family, his role in the family, and of God's promises. He didn't need his family, and he didn't value God's promise. The second problem we see is that Judah marries a Canaanite, despite repeated warnings against intermarrying with people of the land at risk of being influenced by their practices of idolatry and uh, child sacrifice. And then the third problem is a little bit more subtle here, but the structure of the sentence implies that Judah married quickly and out of lust. Um, the word took, it's a suitable word for to take in marriage, um, but earlier in Genesis, anytime we see see and take, or he saw and took, put together, that's not a good thing. Eve saw and took the apple. Sechem saw and took Dinah and raped her. The Egyptians saw and took Sarah and added her to Pharaoh's harem. Now compare that to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who just took their wives in marriage. We see um, Judah saw and took this Canaanite woman, probably based on impulsive lust. Uh, which is in line with the character that we see in the rest of our story here. So these three follies, they happen in quick succession, and they set Judah down a sinful path with serious consequences. So when we, if we continue on, Judah has three sons, and we observe that Judah's family is perhaps even more messed up than Jacob's family. Reading uh, verses 6 through 10. And Judah took a wife for Ur his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that his offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also." This isn't the proudest description of family life in the Bible. It's not one we've ever used for family worship in our home. It's not one that you hope to discuss with your friends that are skeptical about Christianity. But it does reveal the type of father that Judah was. The author doesn't share what it was that got or killed, but we can safely conjecture whatever evil he was involved in that it could probably be attributed in part to his upbringing. 
Remember from the timeline, Ur is either 16, 17, certainly no older than 18 at this point. He's still a youth in some fashion, and so he should be reflecting to a degree the values of his parents. His mother came from a culture with wicked practices like infant sacrifice and bestiality. Um, as for Judah, we can only guess that either he condoned it or just completely removed from it. He was utterly passive, just like his dad. Either way, we can assume that Judah is guilty by association. Like father, like son. When Dinah was raped, Jacob did nothing. When Reuben slept with Jacob's concubine Bilhah, we didn't see a single consequence. So when we shouldn't be surprised when Judah, aware of this sin, does nothing. But the Lord saw and did do something. He took Ur's life, leaving Tamar as a childless widow. Now, as was the custom of the time, it was the next in line, uh, the brother who was next in line, it was his role to marry the widow and to provide an heir that would carry on the name of the dead brother. And this was done to carry on lineage, also like passing down inheritance and the rights of the land, but also as a practical means of provision and protection for the widow. This was later codified in Jewish law as a Leverite marriage, where um, Levir is the Latin term for brother-in-law. Uh, in the verse, or the phrase in verse 8 that says, perform the duty of a brother-in-law, that's a single word. So it's a very specific purpose um, for a very specific practice. Uh, the brother-in-law actually did have the option to decline this responsibility, either because he already had a wife and didn't want to deal with another, or he didn't want to um, basically assume kind of like a donation in terms of you're basically giving that inheritance to someone else, to your dead brother, in a way. Um, but you couldn't decline without public disgrace. And, and in this process, the widow would actually remove the sandal and spit in the man's face. Um, but Onan did not publicly decline. Instead, he kept up a false image of intending to provide Tamar with a child, but you might say he didn't follow through, but he pulled back from responsibility. What made Onan's practice so detestable was not the sexual degradation of using Tamar, although that was certainly wrong, um, but why he was judged was because Onan's greed was so prevalent to where he didn't care that he was doing this at the expense of Tamar. He cared more that he would retain the larger inheritance by not having to pass something back on to Ur than if he were to leave Tamar basically without a thing to her name. And now notice, this was not a one-time offense for Onan. Uh, verse 9 says, whenever. So this is a regular practice of deception, of greed, of immorality and abuse. But God saw what Onan did in secret, and so killed Onan as well. Now in these few verses, of six, uh, from verses 6 to 10, we see the consequences of poor parenting. And you have to wonder, could this all have been different if Judah were a different man? If he had actually instilled some form of basic morality in his sons, how differently could this story have gone for them? And how true is that, though, of so many stories in the Old Testament? Countless sins and follies could have been avoided if parents were merely as concerned about their children's character as they were about passing down the inheritance. Now, it would be a whole sermon on its own that we don't have time for, but our children are also at risk from spiritual passivity and from poor shepherding. But perhaps not about leaving your family, like Judah did, but certainly of leaving the faith and leaving the church. Let's look at Judah's next son, verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, 
Remain a widow in your father's house till Shua, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Judah concludes that his last son may die and that his line was at risk of being cut off due to this black widow. So he sidelines Tamar, who had no recourse. It's not like she could take him to court. Her only option was to remain a widow indefinitely. Um, And we know from verse 14 that Judah had no intention of reuniting the two of them. So notice that his solution here, though, was to get rid of Tamar rather than to simply tell Shelah what the right thing was to do. Either Judah didn't learn from the deaths of Aaron and Onan, or he was just too blind to his own sin to see it. Judah did not repent from family sin, but instead concluded that Tamar must be the one at fault and sent her away. And what a hypocrite this was to just push her as an indefinite widow when we look at Judah in the next section. Notice how Judah quickly seeks out companionship himself shortly after his wife dies, and how much harder it would be for Tamar, a young widow without a child compared to a wealthy tribesman um, who has an heir and has lived a longer life. So continuing in verses 12 through 15. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered his face, her face. Now, sheep shearing was a big deal in that culture. It was equivalent of like a big festival um, and all the immorality and celebration that would accompany that. Tamar had been waiting pati- patiently for Sheila, and we see here that she's still faithfully wearing her widow's garments, but she's figured out that that was all just a rouse to keep her off to the side. She had figured out that she had been lied to and sidelined. So she seizes this opportunity, knowing the type of man that Judah was, and that he would be looking for another type of comfort now that he was widowed. Now in Canaan, intercourse with a a cult prostitute was considered something you do to appease the fertility gods. It would help you have a better harvest. So Tamar um, disguises herself, and Judah quickly took the bait. So let's pause for a moment. We might wonder, why didn't she just remarry someone else? Why target Judah, her father-in-law? That's really creepy. First, she didn't have the option. It wasn't up to her to remarry. Her father-in-law was actually the authority here and did not permit it. She was technically promised or engaged to Shelah, though it was a farce. Secondly, it would be extremely advantageous for her to be the mother to the heir of Judah's tribe. If she were to provide a, a son on behalf of Ur, that would put her first in line within um, the tribe. And Judah was very powerful and wealthy. And third, God's blessing was promised to Jacob and Judah. It's possible that she, being a Canaanite, that she saw this and wanted to partake in this promise. Although Judah may have not seen the value to God's blessing, Tamar did. But that wouldn't happen if she wasn't part of the family. Now, all these concerns would have actually been met had Judah simply just given Shelah to Tamar in marriage, as promised. She would have provided an heir to the tribe, securing herself and associating herself with the promise. But Judah's deception really forced her hand, and the only means by which she could have become pregnant is either by Judah 
if not by Shelah himself, otherwise it would mean certain death. So she puts her plan into action, which turned out to be quite easy. Reading in verse 16, He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Now notice that Judah initiated, and he didn't start out with small talk. He didn't even ask her name or, So are you from around here? He just basically says, I want to have sex with you. And her response was just as businesslike. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? Basically she said, How much? He answered, I will send you a goat from the young, a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you will give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Now, a staff was a symbol of authority, and it was unique to its owner. And then you've probably heard of a signet ring that they would use to press into wax or some other material or leave ink behind. This was probably a signet barrel because it's on a cord, so you would just roll it. But it has etchings that are unique to the identifier. It basically worked like a, a signature back then. So... And essentially, he's giving her modern-day driver's license and credit cards. And Judah has no worry about this. She says, so he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam by the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you didn't find her. So Tamar got what she wanted, and Judah upheld his part of the deal. Now it's interesting, this is actually the third time that we see a goat involved in deception in Jacob's family. The first time was when Jacob put it on his arms, pretending to be Esau, and he tricked um, Isaac into getting the blessing. The second time is when Judah used a goat and his brothers to cover up um, uh, Joseph's cloak. And then now it's time for Judah to be deceived by a goat. But Judah was too concerned about his reputation to get to the bottom of this. He washed his hands of the deal just saying, look, you tried to find her and you couldn't. We did what we said we'd do. She's on her own now. And now we come to the crux of the story. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Now this really shows how little Judah knew or cared for Tamar. The truth is that Judah barely knew her at all. He was probably just as checked out in family life with her. Each time that Tamar is mentioned in a sentence with Judah, it calls her his daughter-in-law, showing that there's really nothing more than just a formal connection here. He had lied to her and sent her away as an indefinite widow, and it was probably out of sight, out of mind. He didn't even recognize her when he had sex with her. Clearly, he doesn't keep up with her at all. So we should not be surprised when he coldly calls from a distance to have her burned in verse 24 without fact-checking, without visiting, without saying goodbye. In fact, Judah was likely trying to just keep up appearances. He, called, he shows his false righteous indignation because the penalty for adultery was stoning. But he takes it up a notch and says, let her be burned. So just as Judah is about to rid himself of this Tamar problem, we come to the climax of our story in verses 25 through 26. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. 
Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. You can't have adultery without two offenders. Judah's sin had been made public, and Tamar was spared. <clears throat> the author doesn't comment on whether what Tamar did was right or wrong, but only that Judah admitted that he had kind of forced her hand, and what he did was much worse. For the first time in Judah's life, we see Judah humble himself and confess sin. You have to wonder, how long? How many decades had Judah lived with a hard heart, refusing to acknowledge his sin? But when he's put on the spot, after decades of this downward spiral, Judah owns up to his sin and repents. And not only this sin of adultery, but also to the mistreatment of Tamar and the neglect to parent his sons, Judah's entire sin is before him, and almost certainly with a flashback to his disposal of Joseph. Judah had used the exact same phrase, please identify whose these are, when lying to his father and presenting the blood-soaked cloak. Judah was confronted with his life of sin, and he finally chose to confess it. Now to be clear, Judah wasn't completely backed into a corner. He could have covered this up. With the power and the influence that he had, he could have easily accused Tamar of stealing his things to frame him and to cover her tracks. Now, if it came down to her word against his, who do you think would have won? A, a widow with a grudge or a chieftain that's grieving? But Judah knew what had happened to Ur and Onan when they tried to conceal their sin, and so he fesses up and repents. And although this is the last that we hear of Judah for a few chapters, we know that this confession in verse 26 is the beginning of true repentance because we see a very, very different Judah in chapter 43 and 44. So to finish up our story, let's read 27 and, uh, through 30. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now I've been present for four live births, but I've never seen anything remotely like this. This, this chapter has been fill, full of uncomfortable details, has it not? Um, but it concludes with incredible redeeming value. The chapter begins with Judah having three sons, and it ends with Judah having three sons. Now, the road is a bit twisted and bumpy getting there, but the promised lineage is still intact. Tamar is finally provided for, although her means were scandalous. And she's now recorded in the genealogy of King David and Jesus. Now, it may seem hard to believe, but the Messiah and the Savior of the world can be traced back to incest between Judah and Tamar. Now, in the remaining 10 minutes, I want to reflect on two themes that are woven through our story here, and also through the whole book of Genesis. First, the accumulating effects of ignoring sin, and second, that God can redeem anyone in any situation. Now, as for ignoring sin, Judah blame-shifted and refused to own his sin for his whole life, up until this point. He had deadened his conscience and rationalized his actions. Now, had Judah decided to own his sin and change early on, you have to wonder how much pain could have been avoided. I want you to listen to how Judah might have excused his sin as his life continued to spiral downward. Judah rids the family of Joseph for selfish gain, 
But he figures Judah had it, or Joseph had it coming. And then he rejects the family and God's promise. Besides, his dad had messed it all up anyway. Judah befriends the wicked Canaanite culture, and he marries based on lust. But that's the same thing that Esau did a couple decades before, and he's doing fine. Judah neglected to pass down any morality to his kids. But the only time that Jacob ever invested was in that pesty son, Joseph. And when, jo when God judged Judah's sons, Judah did not repent. After all, the problem was with Tamar. Judah lied to Tamar about her future, and he permanently sidelined her, but he was really protecting Shelah, after all. And Judah later casually engaged in prostitution, but it had been a while, and this is just part of the culture's festival. And in self-righteous hypocrisy, he condemned Tamar to death, but she did commit adultery and tarnish the family name. You know, it was not until there was no one to blame but himself that Judah was finally humbled. Now, think about what could have been avoided if he had stayed with the family, or had he properly parented his children, or if he had repented at God's judgment of his sons, telling Judah to do the right thing. His family could have been intact and abiding by the promises, but it would have required for Judah to be humbled and to have repented. Judah had killed his conscience, and it took a true crisis to break through his hard heart. And I wonder, how many of us have dulled our conscience and are blind to sin now? Perhaps not nearly living as gross sin like Judah was, but to what degree might we ignore and justify our sin? Perhaps it sounds more like this. Maybe it's yelling at your kids because they won't obey you even though you've told them so many times. Maybe it's living selfishly without concern for your spouse because she doesn't respect you or your decisions. Maybe it's gossiping about others because it makes you look better and it might be helpful information. Maybe it's looking at websites that you shouldn't be on, but it's not really porn and your wife's been distant lately. Maybe it's cheating on your time card at work, but you know that you work harder than your coworkers do. It's easy to justify sin when we're comparing ourselves to others. It's also easy to be blind to your sin when your mind is so full and distracted. In our culture, we spend a lot of effort avoiding introspection and reflection. We distract ourselves with comfort and entertainment. How many of us are not in prayer, in scripture, or spending time with God because we are in something else? And that something else might be the occasional stressful season at work, or it might be exhaustion with young kids, but I would guess that far more often that something else is entertainment and leisure. Now, when I go extended periods without prayer, or being in the Bible, um, I notice a change in my character, and so does my wife. I become less patient, um, much more harsh. I become more passive with problems in our family. I become unguarded and undisciplined in my, in my thought life, and I lose a passion for evangelism. Maybe your particular symptoms are different um, than mine, but I guarantee that your intimacy with God, your harmony with others, your effectiveness in ministry, that these are very much connected with the time that you spend with God and your awareness of your own personal sin. Being in prayer and scripture is like the sun streaming through your windows of your house. When the sun rises and it directly hits the hardwood, at hardwood floor at an angle, it illuminates all the dust and you wonder if you had actually swept just the night before. So when you see your sin, how will you react to it? Will you repent freely and often, or will you wait for a crisis like Judah did? It's never too late to repent, and there is no person or situation that is beyond redemption, which brings us to our last point. 
God can redeem anyone in any situation. Chapter 38 is just one story of redemption. But that's, there's so many of them in the Bible, and that's what the overall Joseph story is about. What his brothers had meant for evil, God meant for good. And so chapter 38 also ends with redeeming value. First, for Judah's line, because of Tamar's action, Judah actually had the largest of the 12 tribes when Moses took the census in Numbers 26. Now, if she hadn't done anything and it was just Shelah, that would certainly not have been the case. Second, Judah himself is a changed man. In Genesis 43, Judah vouches to protect his youngest brother, Benjamin, saying, I will be a pledge of his safety. For my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Judah's actually willing to take the blame, to care for the next favorite son, like Joseph was. In chapter 44, Judah makes good on this pledge and offers his own life in place of Benjamin's. Reading from verse 33, Now, therefore, please let me remain instead of the boy, as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Did you notice that Judah was actually concerned, not only for his brother Benjamin, but at the expense of himself and for the well-being of his father? This is a very different Judah than the one who we saw reject his family. So Judah is changed, and he later receives the longest blessing from Jacob, second only to Joseph. Now, most surprisingly, Judah and Tamar's incest is actually redeemed as well, but with the focus on Tamar and not for centuries later. Prominent men descended from Perez, the son of Tamar, men like Boaz, David, and Solomon. But perhaps most shocking of all is that Jesus himself descended from this immorality. Now, Joseph was much, much more worthy of God's blessing, but long after both Judah and Joseph are dead, It's Judah's line that carried the blessing for God's people. In Matthew's genealogy, there are only five women that are mentioned. And I want you to see if you can find a common theme. So there's Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and then Mary, the mother of Jesus. So aside from Mary, none of these women were Jewish. And all of them, to some degree, were involved in some sort of sexual scandal. We don't see the Jewish women of promise, like Sarah or Rebecca, listed. Instead, we see Tamar, a deceptive Canaanite widow who resorted to incest. We see Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute who harbored spies. We see Ruth, who was a Moabite widow redeemed by a kinsman. And we see Bathsheba, who was a Hittite whom David committed adultery with. Matthew included these women and not other women to pave the way for another scandalous pregnancy. For the virgin birth of the Messiah. Mary was judged by many and believed by few in her community. She was thought to be unfaithful, but yet God had worked through scandal before. These women also serve to highlight that the promised blessing was not only for the Jews, but also for the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Moabites, for all the nations. But the whole genealogy, these women and men, like Judah, They show us that God can redeem and work in anyone, no matter their past sins. If God would continue the messianic line through Tamar's offspring, the product of incest, harlotry, and deception, he must surely be a God of grace. Now, there might be some here today or listening online who feel like your life is a mess. You would be humiliated 
if others knew what was going on in your life right now or for the past month, year, or maybe even decade. Maybe you've kept your prized sin secret for this long, but you feel empty and dry inside. Wherever you find yourself today, if you call out to Jesus, he can redeem it. God does not discriminate based on personal performance. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, not of Joseph. And it was Tamar mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, not Rebecca, not Sarah. Redemption is not earned. It is a free gift of God to any who would ask. And God redeems sinners like Judah and Tamar, and sinners like you and I, and he folds them into his family. And if you are not yet fully trusting in Jesus' redeeming work on the cross, if you have not surrendered your life into his hands, then repent from your self-reliance and trust in Jesus, because there is room in God's family for you. So please stand as we close in prayer. Father, we thank you that... um, we can approach you, that we can approach you as sinners um, looking for redemption based on what you've done, not what we have done. We thank you for your mercy, your steadfast love, and um, that you can redeem any broken situation. Our lives are often a mess, whatever degree it is. Um, We are selfish, um, but yet you are loving, and you came and you initiated to redeem us from ourselves to bring us into your family. Pray that we would have that joy of salvation and that we would share that with others. In your son's name, amen.